Legally Bound, a podcast hosted by a married couple, Andy and Katie Tricasky. Lawyers, veterans, national news personalities, parents of five crazy kids, and unintentionally comedians. On today's episode of Legally Bound, we talk Jussie Smollett and the judge who branded him a, quote, narcissistic charlatan for staging a hate crime against himself. Katie, welcome back to Legally Bound. Today we're talking Jussie Smollett. I know this is a really big story and I think it didn't get as much coverage as maybe it did initially because of everything else going on. But I am looking forward to having this conversation because it's very interesting in terms of criminal defense work and really just what we see every day in our practice. I think that it's worth discussing all this. Yeah. The Jesse Smollett case has been around now forever. And I think that most people have uh, reached their opinions about what they think happened or what they think about Jesse Smollett. But I think today what we should do is get way deeper into some of the facts behind it and some of the sentencing ideas, the reasons why he got the sentence, what sentence he got. This just happened uh, late last week and uh, talk more about that because we saw one of the most epic meltdowns, outbursts at the end of that uh, sentencing. And there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to unpack for us and the things that we've seen in the past. This is crazy. Why don't you it's, start? Give, give us an idea of, of actually what happened in this case. Just a little bit of the details that people might not be thinking of when they hear Jesse Smollett. OK, so we all know, I think, Jesse Smollett and how this whole story began back in 2019. Jesse Smollett made a report that he was the victim of a very horrific hate crime and that he was essentially attacked by what he called MAGA supporters and was really brutally attacked, if true, um, for being both black and for being gay. That's what he reported. Well, uh, unfortunately for Mr. Smollett, things started to pretty much unravel very quickly thereafter that. And it soon came out that he had actually hired two guys that he worked with who actually were not MAGA supporters. I think they were also black guys themselves. And eventually they ratted him out and said that he'd hired them to stage this attack. And we know that this actually happened because back in December of 2021, Jesse was convicted, meaning that a jury found beyond a reasonable doubt that he had actually hired people to stage a hate crime against himself. So that's kind of what we know under the law. Mr. Smollett still maintains that he didn't do it. But when we have a final conviction, we can sit here and say it happened beyond a reasonable doubt, at least according to the people who made that decision. So that brought us to last week. And as we all know, I think criminal cases can move somewhat slowly. Any legal cases can. So he was just sentenced last week for this conviction that he got in the end of 2021. Not that long ago, really. But that was why this came back up in the news, okay? He was facing his sentence for essentially faking a hate crime, lying to the police, and for the convictions that he received at trial. So that was established. It was done. The purpose of this hearing last week was to decide, really, should he go to jail? How much money should he pay back? What should his sentence be? And Mr. Smollett's biggest thing was he could not go to jail, that there would be no jail time that he could tolerate. And so that was really why it was very interesting to see how this all played out. 
So in the course of the sentencing hearing, so, I mean, to really understand what happens in just a, a little bit of the procedure of things, you have your jury trial, which often takes a long time to happen. And in this case, took a long time to happen, both because of COVID and repeated motions and other sorts of filings by both parties in the case. And there's even some more complexity to it, but it took a long time to get to the jury trial. But ultimately, it got to the jury trial. The jury heard all of the facts and the evidence to decide whether he was guilty or not guilty. They found him guilty, which means that there was unanimity in the jury finding him guilty of these uh, alleged crimes at the time. Now we know that he's guilty of them. And then it was months and months later before the judge actually issued his uh, decision. And there was a hearing that happened before that. Throughout the entire hearing, Jesse Smollett and his legal team paraded one person after another from his family, people that he was closely connected with, uh, to really beg for no jail time. They also uh, had sent in many, many dozens of really high profile uh, character letters or, or plea, uh, pleadings, requests from those in like the Rainbow Push Coalition, uh, Black Lives Matter. Many uh, organizations wrote in asking for no jail time for Jesse Smollett. And really, one after the other, uh, especially the family members, kept going on with this theme that that Smollett was not guilty, that he was innocent. They really maintained that, trying to to claim that there was some uh, basically conspiracy against him. They never really offered how this could have happened with all of the facts at hand and for him to still be innocent. It, It was just totally. That's the interesting part of this. And what we should point out is that when you are convicted of a crime, you go into a stage of your trial called sentencing. And it's very strange because obviously a lot of people who go to trial maintain that they're not guilty of something, Mm -hmm. right? They didn't do it. And even if they're convicted, it's very awkward in a sense to go to sentencing and, and say, you're sorry, because you're still saying, I didn't do it. This was wrong. The findings were just incorrect and I'm not going to, to roll over. But the problem you face is that when you're in front of a judge for your sentence, you have to somewhat accept the final word of the court, if you will. Well, you have, it's called your allocution right. You've got your right to be heard in sentencing, essentially. Right. And so you can uh, go with what the court said, essentially apologize. So show some sort of of uh, apologetic nature, some sort of acceptance. You don't even have to fully have say to. I'm guilty. Right. But, you ha- but to, to show the court some degree of deference, some degree of respect, some degree of acceptance acceptance for your role in bringing about the facts and circumstances is from a criminal defense uh, perspective, a very good idea. Right. And so we deal with this a lot with our clients, of course. So, you know, it's always a balance between not admitting that you're guilty if you're still maintaining your innocence. And obviously you have appellate rights and things like that, but also having respect for the findings of the court in that moment. And being reverent towards the idea that you had a full process, that there was a determination beyond a reasonable doubt of your guilt, and that this particular part of the proceedings is really focused on what should your sentence be if, in fact, those convictions are maintained. And so the presentation of character letters and people supporting you is very common. In his case, of course, as a celebrity, he has a lot of people that are are very involved and very invested in the outcome and very supportive of him. So that's normal. That's very normal. But what Andy mentioned that's a little abnormal is this very 
bizarre and brazen insistence on not accepting the final word of the court. True innocence with absolutely no basis. Okay. That's the thing that we have to remember. Well, remember he testified for hours at his trial, claiming his innocence, giving these various wild theories that the jury absolutely did not buy his right to do. And so when you get to, when you get to sentencing, you have that option. Are you going to essentially change your story? Are you going to plead with the court or are you going to do nothing at all? Here, he made no statement at all. And your your silence is not something that can truly be used against you. However, the fact that you aren't showing some sort of remorse shows that you have very little rehabilitative potential. And in a case like this, it's going to be used against you. Yeah. So I guess it's kind of more of an art than a science is really what we're saying here, because (laughs) the presentation has to be a balance, like I said, of the the idea that you as a person might still want to fight your conviction. And again, I mean, we deal with a lot of appeals as well. Some are more meritorious than others, granted. And in this case, I'm sure Smollett will be appealing. I think he said that. But the way that this particular defense team went about trying to basically disrespect the finding of the court and ignore the purpose of the sentencing proceedings was very bizarre and not, not a common tactic. Of yeah, a certainly something that team. was, if they're skilled and, and they seem to be, this was obviously driven by Jesse Smollett. And to some degree, as an attorney, you can't, you've got to do and present a case theory that is in line with what your client uh, is, is requesting that you do more ethics on that. But anyways, to, to say the least, the uh, presentation of sentencing considerations was pretty catastrophically bad in my view as a criminal defense attorney, because it it did nothing to show any degree of uh, of acceptance of the of the verdict and uh, quite obviously did the other. So the judge takes a break after the presentation comes back and he has a 30 plus minute diatribe monologue uh, before issuing issuing the sentence and throughout uh, absolutely demolishes the the character of Jesse Smollett, uh, sees right through every single layer of everything that happened here. And uh, if if indeed Jesse Smollett is a narcissist, as the judge called him, uh, he did a very fine job. The judge did a very fine job of pointing out every reason why that's the case. And he did it in the most professional, in the most profound sort of way. So we've taken a, a clip of that. We'll play a bit of of the uh, the judge's diatribe, and you can really see how he considered really all of the factors uh, while he's uh, ripping Jesse apart. So why did this happen? That's a good question. I think that's the question on everybody's mind. There's some conjecture you did it for the money. Frankly, I do not believe that you did it for the money. You were making, the evidence showed, close to $2 million a year when this happened. I don't think money motivated you at all. But the only thing I can find is that you really craved the attention and you wanted to get the attention and you were so invested in issues of social justice and you knew that this was a sore spot for everybody in this country. You knew this was a country that was slowly trying to heal uh, past injustices and current injustices and trying to make a better future for each other. And it was a hard road and you took some scabs off some healing wounds and you ripped them apart for one reason. You wanted to make yourself more famous and for a while it worked. Everybody was talking about you. The lights were on you. You were actually 
throwing a national pity party for yourself. And why would you do such a thing? Why would you? I, I understand you crave the attention so much, but why would you betray something like social justice issues, which you care so much about? And the only thing I can conclude is that, is, and I acknowledge there are wonderful sides to you. They're, they're very giving and charitable and loving sides to you, but you have another side of you that is profoundly arrogant and self selfish and narcissistic. That's the only thing that can be concluded. And that bad side of you came out during the course of all these events. Oh, man. That's ripped apart. And, not, and, and you'll see in there, you may not have noticed if you weren't paying attention to what the judge was listening to, but he used the fact that Jesse presented all of this evidence of all his involvement with all mm-hmm. these organizations and these kind of racial justice reform movements and things like that. He used that against him and said, you knew that this would get a lot of attention because you were directly involved with that. So it all backfired very profoundly. I knew the judge was getting very irritated as we were watching the proceedings Mm -hmm. because it was one thing after the next with just ridiculous indignation regarding the findings. And to remind you, the two people that Jussie hired, these two brothers that were put up to staging this attack, totally flipped on him and gave all the evidence that the money they got, it was just like he was completely dead to rights on it. It obviously happened. He's given no reason that these people have, I mean, I'm sure there's been some reason, but no compelling reason that these two made up the story. They were so remorseful and regretful that they got involved with this in the first place. If that was was the case, I would have objected to you shifting the burden, meaning that it was Jesse's uh, obligation at trial to prove why these brothers set him up. No, I'm saying since then, though. Since then, exactly. There's nothing more. If you're going to ask us to not believe that, then we're going to have to understand how that could have happened, that these people were so motivated to fabricate the story against you. But it seems pretty clear that in fact they now feel bad about their involvement in it. So the judge saw right through all of it. He no, saw right through. Totally and, and unamused. one of the things that the judge absolutely ripped him apart on is a legal concept called mendacity. And that's the idea that you do not have a legal right to essentially lie to the court. So you have a right to testify in your own defense and Jesse Smollett did so. But what happened in the course of doing so was that he told one set of uh, facts and stories that the jury found against. And so in convicting him, they essentially determined that what he testified to was a a lie. And so the judge held that against him very viciously through the course of the monologue that happened before the sentence was actually read out loud and really went to town on him about what it means to take that witness stand, get up there for hours and hours and hours, and uh, and was particularly uh, focused in on the fact that even Jesse, while on the witness stand, corrected the prosecutor who used the N-word and called him out for quoting the N-word in the course of what was going on in say and and basically instructing him not to use that word the judge was having none of that and pointed out the irony that this individual who's claiming, Jesse Smollett, who's claiming to protect and defend against these racial uh, issues that are so prevalent in our society is trying to play both sides of the coin. And he was not having it at all. No, the judge was completely unamused and for good reason. It was just an offensive showing. And so when you hear the judge talking before he issues the sentence, he's referring to a lot of what was presented both in the sentencing portion, but also at the the original trial. So what Andy mentioned is an interesting point to, to kind of talk about a little more. You do have the right to testify at your own trial. And if you take the stand and essentially 
deny the crime and you are then convicted, you can then have that used against you. It sounds a little crazy, but that is in fact the case because essentially what the law says is that if you are going to take the stand and offer a version of events to show that you are not guilty and the jury or the judge doesn't buy it and you're convicted, that means you are lying because beyond a reasonable doubt, your version of events was not true. So you take the stand under penalty of perjury. And the consequence for somebody who's actually on trial is that that can be used against them. Yeah. So the judge, I mean, absolutely just went to town on both the what he sees as fabrications, what he sees as uh, perjurous testimony. But more than that, just the irony in what uh, Jesse Smollett has done in presenting both the claim initially. And, you know, the point that gets me more than anything, and the judge was right on this, you know, part of the, the whole plot here was to get a noose around his neck. Obviously, such a terrible uh, sign of just so many terrible moments in American history. And he used that image that he wanted to to put forward in committing this just absolutely horrendous crime. And but the, the fact of the matter is the brothers didn't actually get it around his neck before they ran away. He put it around his own neck. He put the noose around his own neck and then left it there until law enforcement got there so that he would be able to demonstrate what happened here. It is such a show. He is such an actor and such a narcissist oh, to want to do this. Uh, it well, is just what? absolutely that's disgusting. So interesting because it's kind of like so ironic, the symbolism. He wished to use that symbolism to benefit himself mm-hmm. and he ended up using it to benefit the courts because he literally put a noose around his own neck and how symbolic is that? As it turned out. As it I turns mean, out. Honestly, that is so twisted. But I think you, you also bring up a good point about some of the kind of factors in the crime itself. So when you're in a sentencing proceeding, basically there's certain factors that a judge looks to and they call them either aggravating factors that deal with the crime and or the person's character or mitigating factors, things that even though you're guilty one way or the other should reduce your sentence because of circumstances about the crime first time offenses, things about your character that are very good. Mm -hmm. So the aggravating factors in this case, the judge pointed out were a big part of it was the premeditation of the crime. It wasn't just a spur of the moment decision because certainly there's many crimes that are committed and people are found guilty, but they weren't planned out. So we've all know, you know, premeditated murder, that's a bigger crime than some sort of heat of the heat of the moment manslaughter because of the thought and planning that goes into it. It's more criminal. So the judge here pointed out that this crime was particularly premeditated to include the news, to include all these little details, the discussion of MAGA hats or MAGA country sort of shoutings or whatever it was. These all played into his sentence. The other pieces of of the uh, aggravation that the judge pointed out were, as we mentioned, the mendacity, the fact that he testified at trial and was still found guilty. So that means he lied. And then really hugely, his lack of remorse, his huge lack of remorse. Now, again, very fine balance because you believe you're innocent and how can you be sorry for something that didn't happen? But there is a way to actually present these things very artistically and compellingly in a way that does not piss off the person who's making the decision. Because by the way, you're a narcissist. You want this guy to not put you in jail. He's the only thing that stands between you and the slammer. So you're going to sit there and lie to him and scream about how this isn't fair. Do you think that's very persuasive? Yeah, The judge over and over (laughs) says arrogant, selfish, narcissistic. I mean, it's so, it's just so uh, dense to think that you 
and this guy are the only two two that are really mattering in this room, mm-hmm. right? And that's the that's the method you're going to take to persuade him. Well, well, it didn't it, work. It obviously it didn't, didn't work. work. It didn't work for obvious reasons. But. And you, you know, there's uh, there was a lot to be made in the in the presentation from the defense and the witnesses that they had and the letters that they had. That in many cases, telling uh, a, a false story to the police, something along the lines of the the class four felony that he was ultimately convicted of, uh, it doesn't usually result in jail time. Right. Uh, and and they went on and on about it. They did what's called sentence comparison. They were pointing to other cases that. This judge had ruled on where uh, violate, domestic violence violators had been uh, given probation and no actual jail time. And yeah, many other examples of people who with class four felonies didn't actually find themselves in the slammer. And he didn't have to find himself there either. He did this to himself. He literally put the noose around his neck and he did it time and again because this was all his doing. And the so- judge pointed it out in, in giving the sentence. I don't even think we talked about the sentence though. So yeah. So the judge came down and everybody knew there was going to be a sentence. There's going to likely be some sort of financial uh, sentence. There's going to be a lengthy period of probation. That was all. And that was what he wanted. Just the probation. And obviously the financial piece was obvious because he owed the city money for this massive investigation that they carried out. I mean, that was not going to be a debate. And so then the judge uh, reads the sentence and he starts with the things that were obvious. He starts with the probation. He starts with the financials. And then he gets to the actual question of whether there's going to be jail time. Here's what he said. And you will spend the first 150 days of your sentence in the Cook County Jail. And that will start today, right here, right now. Ouch. Five months in jail. It was kind of funny because when the judge was reading off the sentence and it may have just been like the order that they go and not normally, but he started off with, you know, this is your fine. This is the reimbursement to the city, the normal things you're going to have probation. And he even took it upon himself to say, you know, it will be, I think it was informal probation maybe because he said he could travel out of state. He could still work. It was not even like he was very restricted during his probationary period because some people can't leave the state at all. So it sounded like things were going a little bit well for Jossie, or maybe he so thought I would have died to know what he was thinking because it sounded pretty good. And then the judge gets to, Oh, by the way, the first portion of your probation, the first five months, you will be sitting in jail starting today. Meaning you leave the courtroom. Why didn't they cuff him? Well, they led him out and there's a, a mix in different types of courtrooms and right. different types so of scenarios, whether taken the defendant to jail. needs to be cuffed, but he was taken to jail. But before that, <laughs> you know, there's this moment, the judge is going on for 30 plus minutes, ripping him apart, going after every positive character trait, every single story that he's told to so many people, so many influential people throughout our country and people who are particularly influential in the movements that Jesse claims to be a part of, uh, both in from a racial injustice perspective as well as sexual orientation perspective, and absolutely humiliating them in front of uh, these people. Because the, really, many people were watching this. I don't know that the nation was watching it up to this point of sentencing because Ukraine has definitely dominated the airwaves. The story is a little bit old at this point, and I don't know how many people actually cared about the sentence itself. I certainly did, and I think that the people who have been affiliated with this certainly were. He was absolutely demolished in the course of the judge's uh, ruling and the the judge's decision about the sentence. And then there is a point in which the judge uh, 
ends the the sentence. He's wrapping up the proceedings for the day, and Jesse has an absolute meltdown. And this is not something that's particularly normal in court. I've seen things that are along this line on a few occasions. This one specifically is not something that I've seen before. So when the judge is wrapping up with no provocation to what ends up happening here, here's what actually happens. Do you have any questions? Okay. I am not suicidal. Okay. I am not suicidal. I am innocent and I am not suicidal. If I did this, then it means that I stuck my fist in the fears of black Americans in this country for over 400 years and the fears of the LGBT community. Your Honor, I respect you and I respect the jury, but I did not do this and I am not suicidal. And if anything happens to me when I go in there, I did not do it to myself. And you must all know that. I respect you, Your Honor. I respect your decision. Jail time. I am not suicidal. Okay. What an absolute meltdown. Nobody asked if he was suicidal. Nobody had been concerned about him being suicidal. Frankly, in the uh, psychology uh, realm, my understanding is narcissists are not particularly known to be suicidal. But after the judge ripped him apart, I think that he stood up and he had to let everybody in that courtroom know, quote, I'm not suicidal because he was probably feeling the lowest he's ever felt in his whole life. He's probably thinking that he'd rather be dead than hear anything more from this judge to allow those news uh, uh, clips to be played back and to go sit in jail while people judge him on the outside while he's not able to have uh, his story come over and over and over again. He must have felt as low as possible. And so he's trying to put out this false narrative again so that if he goes to jail and hangs himself or does something terrible to himself, he can't allow those people to think that he actually killed himself. This is just more of the same thing, trying to create some sort of Epstein sort of narrative. It is disgusting. It's humiliating. He cannot stop himself. The judge was 100 percent correct to issue a sentence that included jail time, and he was absolutely correct to call him selfish, arrogant, and narcissistic. It was spot on and it destroyed this person. Oh yeah. It was so cringy. I mean, really. And like Andy said, we've seen plenty of people receive a sentence for even very severe crimes and you don't know how you're going to emotionally feel in that moment. I'm sure sitting there, but this is very unprecedented. That sort of outburst is completely bizarre. And I will say, you know, for somebody who's a performer, I don't think he put on much of a performance. It wasn't very convincing. I I mean, what are you doing? Yeah, he's You're just an actor. There. He's not a director. <laughs> oh, yeah, apparently not. He's not a producer. He needed the director Didn't write the there. script. He oh, needed somebody to write it better. Honestly, he's See, that's not- what we do in court. <laughs> we produce it. We we <laughs> help our clients get to a place where Lesson they're presenting a, a good version of the facts uh, that are before them. Right. You know, the, the he was final- acting out his own script, oh and it was God. so unconvincing. It was, it was never believable from the beginning. <laughs> it was his mistake to think that he was more than an actor. He's an actor. He's, he's, he's definitely not a writer or a director. <laughs> I mean, obviously not a very good one at the and very least. And certainly not convincing in in the slightest. So I'm not sure what he thought the judge was going to say. I'm not, I'm not even sure what he believed the point of that was. But I guess I think That's what the I only think. thing 
that's the only thing that makes sense is what you said. It had to be that there's some sort of moment where he felt so overwhelmed with feelings of self-loathing because the judge called him out. And not that it was so complicated to see that, but like to, to have that in your face and to say, look, I just witnessed your performance. Here's my direct feedback on what I just saw. It is very difficult for a narcissist to just receive feedback without cutting in, without giving their two cents, without somehow- that is the, and I've seen that for years in courtrooms. When narcissists are confronted without an opportunity to respond, it absolutely destroys them. Classic example of it. You know, one of the things I, I did want to touch on before we wrap up is the fact that this story got so much attention. I, I think that it deserves attention. And I don't think that it should take away from our country's efforts to uh, find equality in the way that the law treats people of different colors, races, sexuality, etc. Because those are all very important points that need attention and need sensitivity of the court system. I think to the opposite, highlighting this as a as a one-off, as a specific instance of somebody committing just a, what I think is a really heinous crime to cause such a distraction to movements like that. We really do have to call out the individual and what that person's problem is. And we see it not just in crimes regarding uh, race, but also in crimes that that involve uh, sex. The right, it's not allegations just, of it's me not too. It's not just lip service to say you're taking away from legitimate victims by causing some sort of falsity about this because of course it will cause people to think in the future. Is that really true? They'll have more doubt about people reporting things. And that's on him. That's on him that people that are going to report racist attacks or racist engagements of any sort are going to be looked at more dubiously. Same rings true for victims of sexual assault, Mm -hmm. false, which is what we do more than anything take away from legitimate claims, right or wrong. It's just human nature. Once we fool me once, you know, I mean, if we are confronted with an obvious story that was fabricated, we're going to be very dubious of other claims in the future. And that's not necessarily fair to those people. It's not. So it is super important to look at each case. Yeah, every on case its has to be looked at on its own. There's nothing we more have to than be that, aware that people but, do fabricate things like this. Yes. We have to be aware that there are crazy people, narcissists who are arrogant and selfish enough yeah. to want to turn the attention on them to create some sort of story of victimization, and that those people are criminals and that our criminals justice system should hold them accountable and responsible because that's a huge crime that really is disadvantageous to so many important movements. And that's why I still think one of the most important things that we always hit on is do not ever generalize any crimes, any people who are accused, any victims, because Mm -hmm. you're doing a disservice to everybody else because each case is so individual and it's only fair to judge it on its own facts and not to generalize. But as people as humans, we're going to have these memories of things. And so bad on him for doing something so disgusting that he takes away from true victims. And I really, really think that that was the most egregious aspect of all of this attention, mention, you know, whatever he wanted, but (laughs) he did everyone dirty in that well, respect. In, in the five months that's he, that he's in there, I don't think that he's going to receive the message very clearly. No, I hope he does. I hope never people learn. on the outside see that and they see the risks of telling these sorts of lies to the courts and police that implicate people uh, falsely. I, it is absolutely humiliating. And, you know, for us, we are going to keep breaking these cases apart. I'd love to do it. Until next time. We're legally bound. <laughs> <laughs>